Listen, uh, turn to Romans 14. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning, and you can o- open up your bulletin, and uh, there should be a handout in there for you as well. Last week, we looked at the first part of this and thought around these ideas that we are committed as a church family to walk arm in arm, even though we don't see eye to eye on everything. Last week, the first part of the chapter looked at not judging each other, and this week, if I could summarize all these verses we're going to look at, it would be don't harm one another. So if you look at Paul's flow of thought, he's moving from attitude toward people within the church family onto action in the church family. In disputable matters, the way of love is neither avoidance at all costs, that's fire extinguisher people who at the slightest sign of any conflict, they go and they put out that spark because they're afraid of conflict, they don't want to ever have discussions about disputable matters. But the way of love is also not the other extreme, which is a pyro, and that is turning every conversation lit on fire with a disputable matter and wanting to feed off of the argument. When we spot either one of these, it ought to grieve us, Christian. It ought to grieve the family of God, and we ought to speak up about it. We ought to, um, to confront it because these things destroy unity. In this series on colossal truths, uh, we're now in the home stretch. What Paul has done is he's laid out in the whole first part of Romans uh, in, in thorough and comprehensive detail what the good news is, what the gospel is. And now what we're doing is we are working through the implications of those realities, the way that they reflect on our relationships, the way that they transform our relationships, first and foremost to God, and then remember to our very selves, God's given us a mind. God's given us a body. How are we to relate to ourselves? And now we're looking really clearly uh, in the second part of Romans chapter 12 on through the next uh, few chapters, specifically how are we to relate to one another? There's two chapters that we've arrived at, and it's chapters 14 and 15 of Romans. And when you see chapters 14 and 15 of Romans, what I want to lodge in your mind is this. These two chapters are specifically dealing with how Christians are to love other Christians within the family. Paul's already laid out in Romans 12 and plenty of other scriptures how we're to relate to people outside of the faith, outside of the family of God. There's all kinds of instruction there. But these two chapters, there's this huge command and laying out of how Christians are to love other Christians. You know, learning to love is the number one lesson that God wants you to learn while on this earth. Learning to love is the number one lesson God wants you to learn on this earth. Jesus summed up his lesson plan really simply. Love God, love other people. What's the common denominator? Love. Learning to love is the number one lesson God wants you to have on this planet. Learning to love God and others is to be our highest goal, our greatest aim, our first priority, our deepest aspiration, our strongest ambition, our constant focus, our passionate intention, and the dominant value of our lives. The more we learn to love authentically, the more like Jesus we become. So why all the trouble? I didn't tell you something that's new to you this morning. I haven't seen any looks of, oh, that's the problem. Why all the trouble? Why don't we just do this? 
Think about this. Romans 14 could be summarized this way. Accept one another and help one another. I said it negatively the first way, right? Don't have bad attitudes toward each other and don't hurt each other. Stated positively is accept one another and help one another. How basic does this sound? Why are there rules in the Bible for things that ought to be just fall off the log easy? Here's why. The spirit we are born with does not accomplish this on its own. It takes a renewed spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of us to live this way. Why do we need instructions for really basic things, for the obvious? Because we are failing in those. We need direction back to what is right. You know, this is just further evidence of a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview says this, that there is a curse on this world due to sin. And that curse has affected everything from all of creation to including and especially our relationships. Our relationships to God, our relationships to ourselves, how we view ourselves, and our relationships with one another. What a sin do it puts up barriers. I'll tell you where a lot of the frustration comes in relationships. It's because of this. There is a gap of what we know could be in relationships, and then there's the reality, right? So kids don't need to be taught this. Kids can instinctively understand uh, whenever there's abuse of any kind, emotional, verbal, uh, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, a child understands this is not how mom and dad should be treating me. And it does something to a person, doesn't it? Changes their psyche. It, it, it messes with us. We understand there's a gap. This is not how it should be. It should be this way, and it shouldn't be this way. We can't articulate that when we're little, but we understand that. Here's the one side of the gap. Jesus says in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Quite simply, we see that laid out, and, and that's one side. What's the other side? The other side is stark reality. Broken promises and failed marriages and absent parents, rebellious children, disloyal friends, and gossiping churches. Jesus comes not to give us relational tips or even just to show us the way to be relationally sound. Frankly, this could just lead to more sadness as we see the way of Jesus and we compare it to our own experience and our own actions and we get more and more depressed. We get more and more of that gap. He didn't come to give us relational tips. He came to give us life. He came to give dead people life. He came to people who were, who were far from God to bring them into a relationship with God. We're dead in ourselves. Jesus makes us alive. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, catch this, was preceded by a perfectly lived life. Therefore, he became sin. He was the substitute that took on sin so that we could be made righteous. Now, with that hope in mind, I want to read our passage today. And I want to instill in us a confidence that the Father knows how to instruct his children. 
Don't we care in our homes, those of you who have small children or not so small children anymore still living in your home, don't you care about both the attitude and the actions going on? Of course we do. We seek to instill that. And so God's doing that with us. Romans 14, starting in verse 13 to the end of the chapter, follow along. It says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of, of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual building up. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubt is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This morning, I've called the message choking hazard. And I called it that way because this is life or death. This is a life or death issue. It's not a secondary thing. When the airway of love is blocked by a foreign object, things get really, really critical. So who cares if we're tending well to feeding a person, to bandaging a person, to comforting a person, to training up a person if they can't breathe? How many people are far from a church because the pathway of air was blocked and they couldn't breathe? That's how serious this is. Paul is instructing Christians on how to use their liberty responsibly. And it's a difficult lesson to learn, and it's not just a difficult lesson to learn for Christians. We as a nation know that sometimes freedom destroys. Freedom has a really high price tag to gain, doesn't it? And freedom has a really high price once obtained. Remove or shift the responsibility and things go really, really bad. Let me take just one example in our country. Remove responsibility and just talk about sexual freedom and you know what you get? A lot of things. But at the very least, you get a culture of death around abortion. You take away the responsibility and you have an abortion epidemic. The discussion around this centers around choice, right? the freedom to choose. That's the right subject matter. It's the wrong timing of things. When are you free to choose? You're free to choose before the sexual act. God's given us free will. He has said thus far and no further. One man, one woman for all of time. The freedom to choose is there. 
And then if that results in a human life, there's now responsibility to discuss, right? If you take our men and women, if you take our boys and our girls, and you shift the conversation away from the responsibility side of things, what happens? You cripple them. You take a sin, you take something that, that was made in, in a decision earlier in time, and then you change the conversation and you cripple them. To shield men and women from that is to help sear the conscience. Sometimes people say that success is hard to handle. So is freedom, friends. Freedom is hard to handle. You know what freedom sometimes leads to? Excess, greed, pride, ungratefulness. Another sort of subtle shift away from ungratefulness is entitlement, right? Those who have the most freedom begin to breathe that air. They don't even know they're breathing it. They haven't tasted anything else. And it can lead to some really difficult things. Here's another interesting thing, that freedom and fighting seem to go hand in hand in one way or another. All these little pithy sayings have something in common. Choose your battles. Is this a hill you're willing to die on? Don't win the battle and lose the war. Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't major on the minors. All of these deal with conflict. Now, most of you in this room haven't argued over holy hamburgers lately, right? That's not a struggle. That's, you know, dietary laws and Sabbath rule keeping. That's what Romans 14 is dealing with. That's not our thing. But we looked last week. Uh, we're not so far off. And the truth is we've disagreed just the same. Now, the reason for conflict is really, really simple. It's this. Contrary to what all of us think some of the time, you don't know it all. 1 Corinthians tells us really simply, we know in part. And because we know in part, and because the person sitting next to you and behind you and in front of you and up in front of on the stage, because we all know in part, there, there results in conflict, right? What's the big message Paul's instructing here? It's proslambano. It's to welcome well. I love that we just sang, God, you're welcome here. The start of Romans 14 is this. God's already welcomed your brother and sister. You welcome them as well. So just as we've invited God into our presence and into our hearts, given access to him, uh, we, we turn and do the same for others. All right. I want to give you some steps to avoid being a choking hazard to your spiritual siblings. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Step one, if you're taking notes, is don't judge. Stop. It's wrong. This is a recap of the first part of the chapter. Paul's saying this a second time. He's saying it a second time because we need reminders. You know, judging takes many acceptable forms in the Christian church sometimes. People say, oh, pastor, I'd never judge. Okay, but do you compete with one another spiritually? Do you gossip? You find yourself comparing? Oh, so they're doing that now. Do you find yourself tattling? Do you notice the actions of others or lack of actions of others? Maybe you don't write it down physically, but you write it down mentally. Here's a classic one. You ever ask for prayer for other people? Hey, let's gather around. We just need to pray for this person. 
Man, all of those, if you do those things, it doesn't necessarily mean you're judging, but those are sort of Christian accepted versions of judging that ought not be there. Judging in disguise. Step one is, is judge. Step two is, or step one is don't judge. Step two is judge. Verse 13 says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide. Do you see the priorities choice here? Where are you putting your mind? Are you putting your mind on your siblings by passing judgment on them? Or are you putting your mind on yourself? God, is there any wicked way in me that is causing other people to sin? Is your mind set on God or is your mind set on the latest gossip? Man, just a really telling thing that's objective, objectively knowable is what we swipe through, what we look at, how we spend our time. You ever track that? Periodically, you ought to take inventory of where you set your mind. How many minutes a day are on a screen? What's on the screen? And just to look at those things and say, no wonder this is a struggle for me, or no wonder this isn't really a big deal to me. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide. Decide what? Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So a few things to to do is this. Decide not to cause others to stumble. You know what this requires? It requires distinguishing between one thing and another. It requires making judgments. Ask yourself, is this right or is this wrong or is this just different? A lot of things aren't right or wrong. They're just different than what you're used to. That's a moral question, right? It takes moral intelligence. Here's a second question. Is that sibling of mine struggling with my actions? By the body language, by by that sort of quick ending to the conversation, by that shift in subject matter, is my brother or sister in Christ, are they struggling with my actions? What does that take? That takes relational intelligence, right? You've got to have some relational IQ. So this requires judgment in the moral realm. It requires judgment in relational realm. And finally, here's a third question. Am I on the road of love or am I veering off? By my actions right now, am I clinging to some right that I know I'm right on and, and, and veering off the path of love? Am I a pyro or a fire extinguisher in this? What does this take? This takes some self-awareness intelligence. So what 14, chapter 14 of Romans is getting at is this. This is not just get your biblical knowledge intact and off you go. Knowledge puffs up. What does love do? It builds up. More and more and more moral IQ might leave you in a really treacherous place according to Romans 14. That is that you're not accepting someone that God's welcomed. That is that you're injuring a brother or sister for whom Christ died. I mean, do you see how urgent this is? This really is life or death. So decide never to put a stumbling block in the path of an Look at the language of this. Verse 13 says, in your brother's way. Verse 14, for anyone. Verse 15, if your brother is grieved. Verse 19, look for peace and mutual edification. Verse 20, someone else. What you see in Romans is the focus is on other people and not on the self. 
Just that one thing begins to get you. How do, I, how do I free responsibly? I free responsibly by having my focus on other people and not on myself. That's what the language talks about. Secondly, make up your mind about matters and issues. We talked about this last week. Paul was fully convinced. That means he had formed opinions. It takes time and energy and intentionality to form uh, biblical, informed opinions. It takes none of that to just form opinions, right? You can form all kinds of opinions and be dead wrong. But to form biblically sound opinions, it really takes energy. It teaches others to do the same. Much of the debate and discussion uh, in our culture seems to have lost sort of the art of debate, which is civilized pondering, it's give and take, and it just jumps right to argument, right? It's contemptuous, it's angry. I remember hearing a Christian apologist one time, I thought, man, what sets this person different? It's that they're gracious. <laughs> they're filled with truth. They're, they've just got this steel trap mind. They're quick-witted, but they don't go around destroying people. He, he could have. But boy, he showed restraint right there. Why? He's pouring his energy into the argument, not into the other person and not into victory. Right? Don't we see this with Christ all the time? Christ just could have gone around and just gone, and just mowed people down with his knowledge. It would have been the most unloving thing imaginable. All the time we see Jesus showing restraint. He had all knowledge and he dispensed it in the moment as was needed. Disputable matters we looked at last week. I, I shared with you that I had a whole world of education that went on outside the classroom when I was a student at San Jose Christian College. With some of my roommates in the dorm, we had these kinds of disputes, important biblical things. Like my Indian roommate who argued with me one time that the accordion is the most moving instrument for worship. And um, a friend of mine had a bumper sticker at the time that said, play an accordion, go to jail. So we, we were at different, you know, we were at different ends of the spectrum. Um, with, my, with my Washington friends, you know, a, a guy was just dead set that the Washington Huskies are the best team. I didn't really even follow, you know, college football in my college, San Jose Christian College, didn't have a football team, but I argued with I, I was sure he was wrong. I didn't know why, but I knew he was wrong, so I argued with him on that. Um, with other of my, of my Asian dorm mates, you know, soy sauce over salsa. I mean, this is the kind of thing that people argue about, right? When you look back on it, it's really dumb. Even in the very midst of it, you go, huh, this is kind of dumb. But, you know, and then you launch back in for a new volley of why you're right. We know in part... I know that for some in this room, this whole concept is just extra difficult for you. For some of you, paradox really, really frustrates you. And if that's true, just know, Romans 14, it's going to be a difficult chapter for you. There's conflict ahead as you dive in and study it. If you long to abolish all ambiguity, get ready to be frustrated following Jesus Christ. There's nuance. There's shades of black and white. And you go, what's true in all of this? Hebrews 5.14 says this, Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves 
to distinguish good from evil. They've trained themselves. To a certain point, you're raising your kids, but what are you trying to train your kids up? You're trying to train your kids up in such a way that they can access information, that they can form logical conclusions, that they can begin to make choices based on all the world experiences that they have, right? We want them to train themselves. We don't want to be with them when they're 32, making every decision for them. If God has revealed something as a mandate, follow suit. Mandate things for yourself first. But if he hasn't, don't mix in your opinion with God's truth. We see this periodically where Paul says this in his writing. He says, this is me writing now. This isn't a command from the Lord. I think you ought to do this. Okay, now this is from God again. Do this. That is a command from the Lord. So I try to model that. The people who preach up here try to model that. That if it's, if, it's, if it's what seems like sound advice, but from us, take it or leave it. If it's from God, take it. All right, here's number three. Step three is to prioritize. Verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Again, do you hear the priorities here? Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue... What makes for peace and mutual building up? Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. You know, to distinguish between right and wrong, good and best, requires energy. It requires ongoing wisdom. Galatians 5 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That means just about the time you have it figured out over some issue that was tripping you up, another issue pops up. And you go, man, I don't know how to think about this. I feel really weird about that. Is that from the Lord or is that from my conservative upbringing? Gosh, people seem to have an issue with this. I don't have any problem with that. Is that because I'm fleshly or is that because I'm not seeing it accurately? So friends, this just requires an ongoing keeping in step with the Spirit. So ask yourself, are you prioritizing God over people? That's the first priority. But then are you prioritizing loving people over all else? Over the tasks that you have coming up this week? Over the comfort that you want? Over the money you want to make? Over screens that are in your life? I want you to take a quick imaginary journey with me, okay? Suppose you're in a rubber life raft with a friend. You're approaching an island, and the raft that you are in is leaking. You're within sight of land, and in the raft with you are a set of signal flares, a week's supply of canned food, and a five-gallon container of water. You must throw over one of these items overboard if you're going to make it to the island, which do you choose? Now, if the first thought that came to your mind is the friend, you probably have some work to do with relational priorities, right? Come on, some of you, some of you are right there with me on that. Yeah, sorry, bud. Man, you know what we've all struggled with? We've all struggled with prioritizing things over people. All of us, on a regular basis. It's so easy to value things over people. 
You know what's interesting about priorities? Knowing what we should prioritize has no bearing on what we actually do prioritize. Isn't that right? We had a whole series on priorities one time. What's greater than? What, where should our focus be? Most of us don't need instruction on where it should be. We need power and help on how to put those priorities in proper place and how to reassess priorities and make those changes. Let me ask you a couple of questions that might help prod what your priorities really are. Not what they should be, because we could all get an A on that test. Here's one. What is the first thing that you think about in the morning? Just take an inventory of this last week. You didn't know this test was coming. So what was the very first thing that you think about uh, most mornings in the last seven days? Here's another one. What does your schedule tell you about your priorities? Again, you didn't know this test was coming. Take an inventory of your last week. What does it say is most important? Number three, as you look at your money, who gets paid no matter what? The one who gets paid no matter what, that's the priority, right? You've set that. You've steered your resources that way. Two more. What do you find yourself talking about the most? If you could just sort of mentally think about conversations, what do you talk about the most? Here's the last one. What's the last thing you think about as you lay your head on the pillow at night? What do you fall asleep to? What do you think about as you drift off to sleep? In your notes, I give you uh, sort of three areas of prioritizing from this passage. The first is walking the path of love over being right. Walk the path of love over being right. Again, this isn't new news to you. But maybe simply in the act of writing this down and seeing it in the scriptures, you say, maybe there's some priority adjustment that's needed in my life. You may have the right to some liberty, but it is, if it is distressing your sister in Christ, your right becomes wrong. Do you see it? You have every right, you have every liberty to act a certain way, to say a certain thing. You know you're free in Christ. You know all things are clean, so you go, this isn't a struggle. But you know that that's causing a struggle in your weaker sister. All of a sudden, your right becomes wrong. Here's the simple instruction. Yield for their sake. Walking the path of love over being right is yielding. It means losing an argument. You know, there's huge power in community groups to learn to work out our salvation in these matters. In fact, the very act of meeting together on a regular basis means that there will be someone at that group that you go, gosh, there's just friction with that person. I really do. I, I know they're welcomed by, by God. I know that Christ died for this person. God, help me to do the same. Help me to find ways to serve that person that I seem to be at odds with. Here's another one. Prioritize kingdom matters, that is the spiritual, over earthly matters, which are physical. Maybe helpful, in fact, your community group questions instruct you to do this. To simply make a list of what the kingdom of God is not. What are the things that aren't a matter of the kingdom? That we can sometimes get sort of worked up over. And then conversely, make a list of what the kingdom of God is. And if you want help with that, turn to the gospels. Why? Because Jesus constantly was saying, the kingdom of God is like. Right? And then he'd tell a story. That story is meant to instruct. That story is meant to adjust our priorities, to evaluate our priorities. 
Bring that list to group this week and let them add to yours and learn from each other. Remember, we know in part other people are going to have things on their list that won't be on your list. Jot down 2 Corinthians 4.18. 2 Corinthians 4.18. It says this, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Here's the third priority. Prioritize building up over tearing down. You know, the word edify is from this Latin word, and the essential meaning of the Latin word that we get edify is to construct a building. Many of you have gone down, in fact, I've been with some of you in the grime and sweat of Mexico building homes. I think it was yesterday or today. When did your dad leave? Yesterday, a team uh, from King's Academy uh, left to go build some homes in Mexico. How many years has, has your dad been doing it again? 22. 22. I heard that on a podcast recently. Um, they are going down to build some homes for people who don't have homes in Mexico. Now, I want you to imagine for a second, if the team went down, started building because the need was evident, but then they discovered that the person that they were building the home for, which happened to be a woman who had a lot of kids and was caring for an ailing, uh, mentally disabled grandmother in the house, did the following. She slept in on Sunday mornings, and instead of meeting for church on Sunday mornings, her church met on Friday night. Furthermore, she thought that corn tortillas were better than flour tortillas, an obvious mistake. And thirdly, she attended a church on the hill, not one in the neighborhood. And this offended all kinds of sensibilities as a person who attends neighborhood Bible church. And so you decide, you know what? We're going to rip that thing down. Down to the foundation. Take it down. Ludicrous. Never happened, right? Now catch this. How much more... To destroy the work of God in someone's soul over equally petty things. Not good and bad things, but different. That's what much destruction of of one sibling to another uh, occurs in the church. And it grieves the heart of God. 1 Corinthians 10 is going to be looked at by your community groups as well. It's sort of a parallel passage where... Paul's addressing the same exact issues from exactly the opposite thing. This was now meat that was offered to pagan idols. And the Jews had no problem eating that meat, but those who served pagan gods couldn't fathom ever eating that meat. Here's what he says. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. We have a value around the church that we say this. We're not just interested in communicating truth. We're interested in communicating truth in a helpful way. That's part of what our heading with simple is all about. You can just dump the four spiritual laws on someone who's far from God and go like that and say, look, I gave him a track. It had, all the answers are right in there. It had Bible verses for Pete's sake. Or you can show them the Bible verses yourself. It's truthful. It's not helpful. Paul says it here. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And here in Romans 14, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not 
destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And by the way, food is a placeholder for any number of things that we can get off, off track and be a choking hazard to our siblings. After all this teaching, Paul gives you one more tidbit that affects what to do with all of this. Look at verse 22 in Romans 14. It says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Keep it to yourself. You might be sitting here going, wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to share our faith. Proclaim our faith. Be unashamed of the gospel. Yes, yes, and amen to all of that. Do you see why reading the breadth of Scripture causes tension? Couldn't you see yourself getting in a conversation with a brand new Christian, and you say, do you know that you're supposed to keep your faith between yourself and God? What? You hypocrite, you're just, a, you're just not courageous in sharing the God. Why are you so ashamed of the gospel? Don't you know Romans 1.16? Nuance. Tensions. That means in any given moment, you might be asking yourself, God, I am on duty at all times. I am wide open right now to open my mouth boldly, no matter how I'm received by people. Would you give me wisdom in this moment? I'm longing to share the good news of the gospel with them, but I will gladly refrain if that's what love requires. You see how different that is than people who go around and said, hey, I shared Christ with 27 people today. Instead of just clapping for that person, maybe you should ask the follow-up question, was that the right number of people? Did you love each and every one of them? Yeah, I gave them the truth. Yeah, the truth is there, but was it helpful? Did it build them up? These are the nuances we have to wrestle with. So step four to not, uh, to not being a choking hazard is this. Savor the victory, but do so privately. Let me kind of expound on the victory I'm talking about. Settle matters between you and God, and then be sensitive to those around you. Settle matters between you and God, then be sensitive to those around you. If you are unsure in an area that others may not feel liberty in... Ask anyone if they struggle in that area before proceeding. Here's an even better idea. Go the extra mile and don't even put them in a position where they might have to lie. You might be out with friends. You have no problem with drinking. Drinking's never been a problem for you. You've never been enslaved to alcohol. You know from Scripture plainly that it's lawful. Do you see how in a group setting, you might look around and say, hey, I'm thinking of ordering a beer. Anyone have a problem with that? Uh, that was kind of terse. Let me try it again. Hey, anyone have any issue with this whatsoever? I'll gladly not have the beer. Anyone have a problem with that? Do you see how that could immediately put in turmoil three people who are in your group of eight friends who go, stomach in a knot, I actually do have a problem with that. I have a huge part of my past that this just brings up all kinds of negative things. I don't want to be a weird person. I don't want to limit him. I guess I'll just not say anything. Do you see how in that situation, maybe the better thing would just be to say, you know what, I'm not even going to ask. I'm not even going to put a burden on someone having to say, I kind of have a problem with that actually. So I'm just going to refrain. That's a scenario that's a situation where not asking, and again, I'll tell you my opinion as to, as to when you ask and when you don't ask. The less you know people, the more you ought to just refrain from some of these trouble areas, these disputable matters. Just limit your freedom around them. 
The better you know them, the more you can say, hey, you know, let, let me know how, how this is for you. And I'll gladly limit and refrain. What Paul doesn't say in this passage instructs us really, really well. Notice that he never tries to change the weaker brother in this passage. He bluntly and clearly says that their position is wrong. Truth-wise, he says, all things are lawful. These things aren't unclean. This isn't a problem. But he doesn't jump in and try to untangle their theological preconceived ideas and correct them here. That means we aren't to strive after pressing our strongly held, well-biblically researched views to enlighten all the poor souls around us. There is a time to speak up and a time to keep silent. Learn to discern in that moment. God, is this, is this a moment where I'm supposed to come in and show a more excellent way, show a more robust picture of that? Or is this a time to just keep quiet about all that? Paul shows a lot of restraint in this. Here's what I mean by savoring the victory. You savor the victory when you rejoice that unity is kept. There are times in a setting, in a church setting, in all kinds of places, and you just savor that between you and the Lord. You go, wow, I could have like inserted a little like conversation grenade here. And, and actually, I'm right. I chose not to pull the pin. I kept the grenade. You know why? Because unity is, is, what's, is, what, is what's needed in this situation. That would derail things. You just savor that between you and the Lord. Savoring the victory means noticing that building other people's faith up has become more important to you than asserting your rights. Isn't that a great victory? You say, wow, God, I really am growing up in you because I'm actually more excited that we have brotherly and sisterly unity in this situation than my younger days when I used to assert my rights and be right in the argument. Savoring the victory means being satisfied that by losing and laying down, you win. That is, you don't destroy a brother or sister that God is building up. Let me have you uh, shift your mind for a second. You notice that there's one step to becoming a choking hazard. Four things in this passage. Don't become a choking hazard. Here's the one thing to becoming a choking hazard. There's one good thing that trips people up all the time. Do not budge. Do not change. Do not remove this. What is it? It's preaching the gospel, right? You preach the gospel, and you will be a choking hazard to people. 1 Corinthians 1 says this. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. Utter nonsense to the other Romans in their day. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You ever notice that when you mention the name Jesus or begin to talk about spiritual matters outside of the church, people kind of trip out and trip up? It's just true. There, things things kind of get weird sometimes. Here's my challenge to you. Here's my challenge to me. Let's make sure that they are tripping up over the cornerstone and not, not all these other myriad of things that, that can be there. Keep bringing it back to preaching Christ and him crucified. I promise you, you'll be a choking hazard to people <laughs> in the best way possible. Now, instead of ending with our customary what God does, what we do in this passage, I thought I would give to you something. It's already written down, so you don't need to look at this, but I want to read them out loud, and that is the seven I wills from Romans 14. 
This is from me, so you can take it or leave it, but I think it's lifted right out of the whole chapter. Here's number one. I will not parade or impose my opinions on other people. Number two, I will, I will allow the creator to be creative and in the process, remember that he likes variety. Number three, I will continue to learn. Number four, I will value people over rights and position and the need to be correct. I will even value people over my own liberty. Number five, I will be clear and loud about the things the Bible is clear and loud about and will remain pliable and quiet on matters which the Bible is silent. Now, don't be fooled. There are a lot of things. People say that church membership, by the way, there's a membership class. How's that for a segue? Right after second service, the word church membership doesn't show up in your Bible. Is the Bible silent on it? Absolutely not. Jesus never spoke to homosexuality. Therefore, you guys should be silent. We should all be pliable on that. Nonsense. His silence is deafening. Read it. So it doesn't mean if the Bible doesn't specifically mention something that we ought to be silent on it. But those things that the Bible is not airtight, closed-handed on, you remain pliable and open-handed. Number six, I will think for myself, not simply of myself. The spirit you're born with, think of yourself as no problem. (laughs) And even think for yourself. But God gives us a renewed mind, right? So we begin to think for ourselves which leads us to think of other people. Number seven, I will find my rightful place by leaving God in his. Who's the judge that your neighbor is going to stand before? It's God, it's not you. Sheep in a judge's wig looks horrible. Knock it off. We're all going to give an account. We're all going to stand before the Lord. You're not qualified as a servant to judge other servants. The master is qualified to judge the servants. We invite the band to come on up here right now. And I'd invite you just to close your eyes and bow your heads. And since we're scrutinizing our scruples, why did the pastor just ask me to bow my heads and close my eyes? Here's why. I hope that will allow for you sort of a little quiet moment for you in a room full of people to meet with God about something. Maybe just as we're here this morning, God has brought to your mind unmistakably an individual that you need to go and seek restoration with. There may be some repentance that's needed on your part before the Lord. God, I have valued my desire to be correct over this person's soul. My hope and prayer for you, even in this moment, is that you would be a receiver of the grace and forgiveness of God. God doesn't just forgive us. He washes our conscience clean. We are all trophies of God's grace. We're walking, living miracles of the living Spirit of God in us, that is transforming us and growing us. And this growth process is often very difficult, very painful. Maybe far more important than singing some lyrics during these next couple of songs is jotting down some I wills of your own from Romans 14. There may be a specific phone call 
email, letter, visit, conversation that needs to take place. God, would you help us? Would you help us show our love for you by the way that we love one another? God, we trip up in this so often and so easily. Help us to never feel hopeless that we can't change. Again, God, you didn't just model the way. You've empowered us to walk as Jesus did. We thank you, God, that everyone in this room is growing up in this. None of us has arrived. We thank you for older brothers and sisters that as we look back on our life, we realize they were so gracious with us. They let us be overconfident in our position because love dictated for them to remain quiet. God, help us to be great older siblings to those who are younger and weaker in the faith. God, for those areas in my life and in our life where we are the weaker brother, we're the weaker sister, God, would you free us up? There's freedom in you. Help us not to be bound by laws, bound to tradition. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.